0: This edition of the EdSurge on Air Podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Fusion Conference, an invitation only event for school and district leaders. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the EdSurge on Air Podcast. I'm one of your co hosts, Mary Jo Matta. There are few individuals out there who can list both two time TED speaker and doctoral student at Harvard University on their resume. Clint Smith is one of those people. Though when you ask him about his work, he doesn't immediately voice those accolades. Rather, he talks about his writings and the time he spent teaching poetry to incarcerated men in Massachusetts. And there's also something else he brings up. His beliefs. Specifically, his concerns that educators across the U.S. aren't adequately teaching about the history of inequality and how it has come to manifest itself in this country. Now, Smith himself is not one for silence. In fact, he delivered a TED Talk in 2014 about the danger of silence. And he has used digital venues, including Twitter, to encourage others to speak up and recognize how history shapes the present. What are Smith's thoughts about the role that technology plays in the ways that students and teachers navigate the world, online and offline? And when it comes to Twitter, are users merely preaching to the choir, or is it truly an effective medium for changing minds? I had the opportunity to speak with Smith this week, and I'll bring you that interview right after this. The EdSurge Fusion Conference is an invitation-only event for school and district leaders from around the country. They'll be coming together in the San Francisco Bay Area from November 1st to the 3rd to talk about personalized learning and school transformation. If this sounds interesting to you, please request an invitation or learn about sponsorship opportunities by going to the following bit.ly link bit.ly slash EdSurgeFusion. That's one word. Again, bit.ly slash EdSurgeFusion.
1: Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in a 1968 speech where he reflects upon the Civil Rights Movement, states, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. As a teacher, I've internalized this message. Every day, all around us, we see the consequences of silence manifest themselves in the form of discrimination, violence, genocide, and war. In the classroom, I challenge my students to explore the silences in their own lives through poetry.
0: That, listeners, is the voice of Clint Smith from his 2014 TED Talk entitled The Danger of Silence. He's been a writer, he's a poet, he's a scholar at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, but he's also been a teacher. And when we talked to Clint this week, we found that he has a lot of thoughts about the implications that teaching or failing to teach the history of inequality in this country has on students as they go and navigate the outside world. And from an internal perspective, my question was this, as someone who uses technology, how does Clint Smith feel about whether it improves or worsens the ways in which students go about navigating that very world? Let's get to the interview. Okay. So let's get right into it. Um, I am here with Clint Smith, who is a writer, a poet, currently a scholar at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. But Clint, why don't you give our listeners um, sort of your 60-second description uh, of who you are as a person, an educator, inherently?
1: Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me. I I appreciate uh, being here on on the podcast. And so for me, I'm Clint Smith. I'm a third year going on fourth year doctoral student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, and I study the history of racial inequality broadly. And specifically right now, I'm thinking about the what social stratification looks like in the context of incarceration and education. And specifically, I've been working in prisons over the course of the last three years, uh, thinking about what education both formally and informally looks like inside of incarcerated spaces. And for my dissertation, I'm thinking about what education means to people who are serving life sentences without the possibility of parole, And so in my other life, I'm also, a, I'm a poet, I'm a writer, uh, and I write um, through different freelance works, through different magazines and had a poetry book come out less than a year ago. And it's been on book tour with that for the past several months. And, uh, but all of these are very much extensions of the same sort of intellectual and political projects of trying to better understand and illuminate the, the reason the sort of, uh, economic and racial uh, inequality landscape looks the way that it does today.
0: And you also, I I would consider you sort of a unique historian in the sense that you've also been a teacher. So you've had that firsthand experience. And um, you and I sort of talked about this briefly before we hopped on this call, but can you talk a little bit about how you think educators either do teach or fail to teach the history of inequality that you mentioned before and how it's come to manifest in the United States.
1: Yeah, so I taught uh, high school English in Prince George's County, Maryland for a few years before I went to graduate school. And for me, that experience very much served as a catalyst for every sort of uh, decision that I've made about how to navigate my life moving forward. And specifically thinking in terms of my scholarship, uh, part of what it did was illuminate the ways in which we have failed to properly diagnose the reason that our education system looks the way that it does, and how our education is really a microcosm of a much larger set of political and historical phenomena that shape what the schools look like because they're shaping what communities look like. And I think my first uh, sort of entry point into that, I remember we had uh, a student get shot at our school, unfortunately, a few years ago, and we came to school, and so many of my students were despondent and they were sad and. It was a, a really difficult time at the school, but they also were carrying this sort of mentality around, oh, well, this is just what happens around here, Mr. Smith. This is just, uh, this is just how things are in this, in this area. And I realized what was happening is that my students were sort of accepting or had accepted or assumed that the sort of socio-political realities of their community and the violence that they see and experience in their communities are somehow in inevitability or somehow reflective of the group of people who live in those communities, which is a predominantly black and immigrant community. Uh, And they begin to internalize this idea that, oh, this is just how certain people behave in certain spaces rather than having a sort of understanding that the reason that your community experiences disproportionate violence, or the reason that your community is disproportionately impoverished, or the reason that your community has such uh, disparate health outcomes is not because of the people in those communities themselves, but it's because of things that have happened and decisions that have been made about your community and things that have been done to your community and resources that have been taken out of your community for decades and decades and decades and decades. And I realized that like nobody was having that conversation with my students. So what happens is our students begin to accept the idea that they, uh, that the realities of their community are somehow static or concrete or, or innate to who they are culturally or, uh, genetically or, or racially, and and that does a huge disservice to so many of the students, and obviously does a disservice to so many of the people engaging with their students because they're carrying they're carrying those same sort of uh, preconceived notions and presumptions about the the groups of young people that we work with that oftentimes the students carry themselves. So all that. So for example, you know you can't properly diagnose what's happening in a community in a school community without understanding the history of housing segregation. In that community, and history of redlining, and history of the re- way that certain communities were, were made, you know, and socially engineered by this country, because certain people weren't allowed to fly houses in other areas, and the way that uh, certain highways were built in directions that took resources away from certain communities, because you would build an interstate highway over, you know, a, one group of people's community, uh, which inevitably would strip away um, the business opportunities that exist in there. And so the list kind of goes on and on. But all that's to say, I think it's really important for young people to understand that the reason their communities look they, the way they do are because people made decisions about what if, whether they were going to prioritize or not prioritize those people in those communities. And that this is the result and manifestation of something that has been happening in these spaces for a long, long time, and not something that is reflective of who they are as, as young people.
0: I think back to my own training as a teacher, and I realized that, you know, and the caveat is that I did do Teach for America, which I believe you yourself did as well, Um, and there was very little said about the history of education, but also the history of segregation, um, political opinion in this country. There was very little instruction about that in my teacher prep courses, and I wonder how do we do a better job then of helping those people who are theoretically quote unquote in charge, the teachers in the schools to both be aware of this history, but also to be aware of their own implicit biases.
1: hundred percent. I think that, you know, part of what has to be done is an acknowledgement that these implicit biases exist in the first place. I think what can happen is is people will bring up uh, the prejudices that that so many uh, so many people in the world that everyone to, in some regard uh, carries with them because of the messages that we've received about who certain people are and how certain people navigate the world or why they are the way they are. And, and unless we're going to acknowledge that directly and, and acknowledge it without it becoming this sort of uh, grand indictment upon our character, then, then we're not going to be able to have a meaningful conversation about how to move forward. But the problem is people become paralyzed when the word implicit biases or prejudice or um, you know uh, implicit discrimination or any of these things come up because they then see that as a commentary on who they are as a person rather than something that they uh, have the ability to unlearn and sort of navigate and recognize and push back against within themselves and so i think that part of what we need to do is acknowledge that we are all subject to implicit biases and, and for different facets of people's identity And the work is not to pretend as if those don't exist. The work is to say, okay, I recognize that these exist. When something uh, triggers that or brings that up, what am I going to do to step back and say, okay, I recognize this is happening. Let me recognize the ways in which uh, this is contributing to how I'm engaging with this person um, who has brought up these implicit biases within me and recognize that these are sort of false notions or these are caricatures and that I need to to move forward in a more effective and, and more more honest way. And so part of it is is being honest about those conversations. But honestly I think part of it is also we have to fundamentally rethink the way we think about what teacher education looks like. And you know, similar to you, I was never having any of these conversations about housing segregation or prison and you know, the mass incarceration or immigration or uh, poverty or the ways that all of these these things affected the lives of my students. I think we can so often silo the conversations singularly in the context of a school building. And so when we talk about academic achievement or academic failure, we're not looking anywhere except within the context of a classroom, which is simply not reflective of the lives that our students live. Our students spend most of their days not inside of our classrooms and not inside of our schools. And if we're not going to acknowledge the range of things that affect our students' lives when they leave our school, when they leave our classrooms, then we're not engaging with the, the scope of and the totality of what needs to happen and what needs to be addressed if we're going to uh, en masse sort of economic and and academic mobility uh, amongst our students.
0: This is something that I I worry about consistently in my work at EdSurge because one of the spaces that I don't think schools have really figured out how to truly work with students on is the digital space. And you know you yourself are extremely active on Twitter but I'm also wondering what do you think sort of the onslaught of the internet and the onslaught of, of digital tools and digital technology in students' lives either done to improve or worsen the ways in which they navigate the world as they know it?
1: Yeah, I think like any any sort of changing social landscape, uh, the advent of technology and its relationship to education has. Had a a range of things that are are really great, and a range of things that are are more difficult to navigate. So you know, I think it can be our students are more connected to their phone than ever. Anybody who is teaching in a in a school, or you know, students who are above you know, even 10 or 12 years old are are keenly aware of that. Especially our high schoolers, um, you know, they're they have Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all of these different things. Um that are keeping their attention in ways that can make classroom engagement sometimes seem more difficult. Uh, the question, I think then, is like in what ways do you recognize instead of trying to to ignore that, or instead of trying to suggest that this uh, those things have no role in a classroom, in what ways can we sort of differently conceive of how to incorporate uh, some of our lessons or some of our pedagogy to be responsive to this sort of new, new way of student engagement. So there, you know, there's uh, so many different teachers who have found uh, good ways and effective ways to use Twitter in their classroom. I just saw recently uh, an article about a teacher who had their students do a sort of oral history uh, project using Instagram and like taking pictures of different people in their lives. I mean, so there's, there are so many different ways to get creative around these things. Um, and I don't necessarily, you know, There has always been a new technology that has disrupted both the social, general social space and the educational space as well. And I don't think that this is necessarily any different. It just kind of necessitates a different way of navigating it. Uh, But on the other end, you know, I think that there has never been more resources for teachers than there are right now. I mean, you know, for people who are interested, as I am, in sort of critical pedagogy and what it means to create classrooms that are, cultivating civic and social and political identities within young people and critical consciousness, you know, there have never been more resources and websites and, and organizations doing that sort of work that, you know, as an educator is just sort of a, uh, a remarkable sort of goldmine of opportunities. I think of the um, then history project, I think of uh, facing history Facing race, I think of and facing ourselves. Think I think of teaching for change, I think of teaching tolerance. I mean, all of these websites are places that uh, you can go and find lesson plans that specifically address so many things that aren't found in your typical uh, literature textbooks or aren't found in your typical history textbooks and, and give you the resources and also give you the community. And they said, you know, just last night there was a, a group of teacher, AP literature teachers, who were using my book. To have a twitter conversation about and it was so interesting to sit there and kind of observe people like using twitter as a means by which to create a, a sort of literary and, and uh, educational community to give one another tips and ideas to have conversations uh, to bring back to their classroom. uh and so i think there's you know these are people who've never met one another but people who are saying oh we're all teaching uh you know the bluest eye on 9 p.m. Sunday night, let's get together and have a conversation about the best ways to teach the Blue aside or to teach um, all of these different novels and texts that they're engaging with. And so for me, you know, Twitter is, as we kind of talked about before, at its best is, is this remarkable encyclopedia of, of information and, and people and ideas that you have access to instantaneously that you simply might not have before. And, and you know, like anything, it, it should be done uh, in sort of moderation and also recognize for what it what it does well and what it doesn't do. Because it can also become something that creates a very sort of insular community in which you are only hearing voices that agree with you. And that's something that I think every social platform is attempting to navigate right now.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a second, because you've you've spoken about the concept of speaking up and you yourself are, like I said before, very active on Twitter. But I do worry sometimes that it is just preaching to the choir. And I, I question whether or not Facebook, Twitter, these social media platforms that have played some pretty key roles in the political decisions of the last six months, they're not necessarily effective mediums to change people's minds and their inherent beliefs. How? What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily say that it is ineffective at or or unable to change people's beliefs. I think, you know, it's not going to take somebody who fundamentally doesn't believe in climate change and then make them believe in climate change. It's not going to work like that. But for instance, I, uh, for example, over the past several years have followed and learned from, uh, a lot of black feminists on Twitter and, and it's pushed my thinking around, um, issues of, of the of intersectionality of the relationship between queerness and blackness and femininity and gender and how we think about the relationship again between all these things so the same way you can't think about a school without also thinking about prisons without also thinking about immigration without also thinking about food insecurity and all of these different things one can't think about race without also thinking about gender without also thinking about sexuality with also without also thinking about socioeconomic income uh, and status and so I followed a lot of people who, who I, you know, aren't necessarily, they're not changing someone's mind in a sort of 180-degree sort of way, but I think you can follow people and engage with people who really push your thinking in a direction that you might have been open to but didn't necessarily know that it needed to be pushed in that way. And so, you know, I, I often joke with people, but it's not, you know, it's not really a joke that I often learn more things from Twitter than I do uh from from my graduate school classes at harvard and that's not a knock on harvard necessarily because i love i love the institution and it's been it's been really uh you know helpful and kind to me but but it is to say that it's it is an important thing to remember how many i'm always I'm, i'm sort of overwhelmed and reminded of how many really thoughtful smart committed people there are doing work in the world and Twitter is an incredible place to get on and see people who are committed to building a better world and pushing one another's understandings and ideas of what that world might look like in a way that I think as an educator uh, you know is is more important than it potentially has ever been because we're entering a, our world is changing very quickly in, in 2017 you know, it's a very different world than 2007 was. And it's a very different world than 2000 was. And the old conversations that we have and the way that we think about identity and the way that we, uh, the language we use around um, identity and people in the world are, are shift- changing and shifting. And um, I think Twitter, you know, on its on its good days is, is an incredible space to, to learn from that.
0: And it's certainly, I, I totally agree with you. It is an incredible place to meet people. And even if, they're, they're close to your tribe. Maybe I would like to describe it as tribe adjacent. You may meet people that you otherwise never would have come across live and in person. Um, and you've talked about, too, in one of your TED Talks, the dangers of staying silent. But I have to pose this question to you because while I was watching one of your TED Talks, I noticed that someone had commented on it that silence, when it's a lack of ego, is the answer for world peace. And I was curious about what you, what you thought about that concept, that how do you balance both speaking up for what you believe in with staying silent for the sake of, I guess, not letting one's ego overrun one's willingness to listen to others?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good and important question. I think, you know, that TED Talk is obviously speaking to silence in the specific context of what it means to see someone experiencing an injustice that might not directly affect you and to recognize that to not engage or not uh, act or to simply ignore that means to be complicit in the injustice that you see happening around you, right? So when your friend makes that homophobic remark and you don't say anything and you just laugh with everybody else, or when uh, you're you know somebody says something disparaging about your students or when you uh, make a, a sort of commentary on um, somebody of a different gender in a way that is meant to be a joke but is actually deeply offensive and people don't say it. so all of these all thinking about all the ways in which we we are not we fail to to fully empathize and engage with uh, identities that are not our own and recognize the sort of fundamental, um, centrality and commonality of, of what it means to be human rather than to have these specific identity markers that, that sort of determine whether or not we're going to speak up or engage with things. And so for me as a, as a straight man, that means that it's incumbent upon me to, to not it's incumbent upon me to recognize that it is not okay for me to uh, stay silent in, in the face of homophobia or stay silent in the face of sexism or patriarchy and that it demands that I unlearn so much of what I've been taught you know, throughout my life and, and instead recognize the necessity of me uh, being an advocate on behalf of communities that I might not necessarily be a part of. And on the other end, to your point, I think it also demands a recognition of when it is best not to say anything, but to listen. Right. And sometimes I think the best advocacy on behalf of the communities and other people can be simply to listen and lift up voices uh, that that aren't often lifted up, and to uh, amplify the voices of those who are, whose voices are often on the margin, um, rather than adding your voice itself. And and you know, there's no sort of cut and dry or specifically demarcated way in which one can think about that. I think it is really it really depends on context, and I think it really depends on. Uh, the nature of the situation. But, but yeah, I think that it is, it's is—it's a balance. It's a, it's a recognition that there are moments and there are times that demand we say something to stand up on behalf of those uh, who might not necessarily be in the room at the time. Uh, and then also recognition that sometimes the best thing to do is not necessarily to add your voice, but to, to listen and to learn from And to amplify uh, the voices of those who are being directly affected by whatever um, experience you you know is being navigated at that time
0: well i on on sort of the last note of sort of listening to others uh i'm curious i know that you write your own poetry you've been a slam poet for a number of years but i'm curious when things are hard what do you read to keep you going what is the poem that you think embodies the work that you do and and sort of is the lifeblood that you go to if you if you need it
1: hmm that's a great question um
0: you can you can pick two if it's hard to pick just one i'll give you that
1: yeah a poem, specifically a poem that I go to?
0: It could be a poem, but maybe really any sort of literary work.
1: Yeah, so I I just posted about this today, uh, but today, this is the, uh, let's say, the 22nd of May. Uh, Today is the 50th anniversary of Langston Hughes' uh, death, and so Langston Hughes died 50 years ago in 1967. And he has an essay called The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain. And in it, he's sort of talking about and explaining how sometimes young black writers feel like they, what's happening is that he is addressing uh, implicitly or tacitly County Cullen, who he sort of had a sort of literary beef with in the age of the Harlem Renaissance. And County Cullen is, uh, a very successful poet who who became well-known and won many awards because he was writing poems and he was writing in a very sort of uh, traditional Western Eurocentric context with regard to form and structure and, uh, and often content as well. And so what Langston Hughes was talking about is that he's like, it's fine if you want to write about the trees and the flowers and the beautiful landscape if you want to write about those things because those things are beautiful and deserve to be written about what's not okay. is If you write about those things simply because you think that that is the only way to be considered a legitimate writer and that you, and you choose to ignore or not write about the different parts of your own lived experience or the people in your community or the way that they talk or the way that they live or the conditions in which they live. Uh, and to, to not write about that because you think that that will somehow compartmentalize you, to not, being, uh, to not be considered a sort of legitimate artist and that that somehow compromises the integrity, artistic integrity of your work um, simply because it is, is imbued with a sort of political and social urgency. And, and in the essay, he's essentially saying, these things are not mutually exclusive. We should never consider them mutually exclusive. And in, uh, you know, part of the way that institutional racism works is it makes you feel that you can't write about your experiences because those experiences don't count as real art. I think for me, you know, I write very explicitly and very purposefully a lot about the history of racial inequality and the manifestations of racial inequality. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people will be like, Oh, you're thinking of or you write so much about race or racism and, uh, you know, don't you ever get tired of that? And for me, I, when I have those moments, I often go revisit that essay because it's a reminder that, that, you know, I I would love to sit around and write about the flowers and Cheetos and donuts and other things that bring me lots of joy. And I do write about those things. But for me to not write about the conditions of the people that I love and the community that I love, simply because I don't think that that would make people take my work seriously as an artist or a scholar or a writer, uh, simply runs counter to, to my own you know, scholarly and political commitments. And I think that that essay, you know, when I revisit it, reminds me um, that those commitments are important and necessary and and to not waver in them.
0: Um, Clint, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. And um, if anybody has any questions or wants to get in contact in you or wants to um, learn more about your your past or, um, you know, what projects you're working on at Harvard, where can they go to find information about you?
1: Yeah, so if you want to reach out, my email is clintsmithinfo at gmail.com. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, it's Clint Smith III. That's Clint Smith III. I, I. And uh, on my website, is Clint Smith III, Clint Smith III. I, I, and you can find all of my work and uh, information on there. And thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation.
0: This has been the EdSearch On Air podcast. This episode was produced and edited by me, Mary Jo Matta, and advertisements were read by Alice Meyerhoff. You can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. You can also subscribe on the iPhone podcast app, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again next week with more on the future of education. We'll see you then.